0: You're listening to Where the World Comes to Talk.
1: This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Brokopovich. This week's guest is William W. Freeling, author of a book 40 years in the making now, The Road to Disunion, Volume 2, Secessionists Triumphant. It's a book that stands on its head almost all we know about the start of the Civil War. We'll find out how the war really began. From our guest today, Bill Freeling on Civil War Talk Radio. programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from my office here on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. On a beautiful spring day in 2007. Uh, celebrating uh, happy news because the Chancellor of the University has taken the time personally to review my progress. Well, actually, I'm sure he just looked at somebody else's report. Uh, but has sent yet another of the, the large string of letters one gets on the process toward tenure from the department and the dean and the provost and the chancellor and the uh, etc., and uh, uh, I'm winding my way there so that within perhaps even a few weeks, when this is approved by the Board of Trustees, and I am actually a tenured professor, I can just stop working forever. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. It's too soon. They haven't approved it yet. But eventually, we're almost there. Uh, but enough about me. What do you think of my course toward tenure? Uh, all right, The old jokes are the best jokes. Uh, enough of that uh, legal disclosure as always it's uh, my show my opinions those of the uh, guests and not those of the East Carolina University or the University of North Carolina system or anybody else it's just us and opinions uh, we should probably have today is we have a book of uh, I would say extraordinary interest uh, the books we talk about in the show each week I find interesting I hope uh, you the listeners do too But this week, we have uh, a book that really uh, demands to be read. Uh, Everyone must, uh, when it's in their bookstores, go out and get a copy and read it for themselves and think about it uh, and argue with it. But today, we get to talk with the author of it, William W. Freeling, uh, who has produced a book called The Road to Disunion, Volume 2, Secessionists Triumphant. Bill, are you there?
0: Jerry, and thanks so much for having me on. And let me say just a word about what you just said. Sure. Uh, I know you're just kidding when you say that the uh, awarding of tenure uh, ends a career, because the awarding of tenure, as we both know, just begins one. Uh, and actually, the harder, uh, you, the more you go on in the uh, professional world, the more in- intoxicating it becomes, and you just keep going and going, and it gets more and more exciting. And tenure is just the beginning of many wonderful years
1: well th- that that's wonderful to hear and i I don't doubt that for a second when when i the people I know who've been in this game longer than I have who have been tenured many cases for a long time uh all the ones I know and talk to on this show and talk to at meetings are uh, as you'd say uh, almost intoxicated with the the excitement of what we do it to be able to study and teach and write uh, uh, and get paid for it is is just a marvelous thing.
0: Well, you're so right. And um, I actually started this book when I was just at your stage. That is to say, I had just gotten tenure. And here it's 40 years later, and I've finally written it. So um, that tells you a little bit about how long the process <laughs> takes and how exciting it
1: is. Well, I've got a manuscript that was due like a month ago. I'm going to tell my editor, hey, I've you know, Bill Freeling took 40 years. You can run.
0: <laughs>
1: That's a good answer. I'll, I'll see if that works. Well, when I say 40 years, your your book, The Road to Disunion, Volume 1, uh, did come out some time ago. Uh, had you always planned on this uh, second volume as part of the project?
0: No, I had originally planned actually to write, uh, back when I was just getting tenure, uh, a book paralleling Kenneth Stamps' book on uh, on the secession crisis in the North, he calls his book And the War Came. It's a wonderful book for your, yeah. for your listeners to read. Uh, and there's never been a, a parallel book on the South on, on the secession crisis in the South and I thought I was going to write one and I thought it would be about 300 pages long and it would take about five years to write it uh, and then I discovered that there was just so many mysteries about secession that I couldn't explain if I just started in 1861 that I started working my way backward and I kept working backward and backward until I got all the way to 1776 uh, and then I began to find the answers I was looking for and the first volume takes my explanation of the answers uh, up to 1854, and then there was a, so a second volume that I've just completed and has just been published, which takes the story right through the firing on Fort Sumter.
1: And and uh, I want to talk to you uh, a lot about that this afternoon. Let me just get a bit, a bit of background here. Uh, you sent me a very entertaining interview you had with the Southern Historian Journal, and I made a point after looking at the first Page to not read the rest of it because uh, I didn't. I, I like to ask questions I don't know the answers to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more fun that way for all That's of the us.
0: Best questions,
1: but tell us uh, uh, about your background, uh, uh, educationally, and uh, your interest in the Civil War era. Well,
0: sure. I grew up in Chicago uh, and went to Harvard, uh, and there took a course with Paul Buck, who was an old Southern boy who. Um, who, uh, who uh, espoused in his lectures the old uh, litany about the South that the uh, slavery was a wonderful institution, the blacks were happy, the abolitionists were demon, uh, the Civil War was a great uh, and unnecessary tragedy, uh, Reconstruction was a horror, the people who redeemed the South were wonderful, and so on. And I was um, I didn't really know enough to know what was wrong with that as a Harvard undergraduate, but. It's, it smelled sort of fishy to me. Uh, and then Kenneth Stamp came along uh, and gave some guest lectures. I think he was probably being considered uh, for an uh, appointment at Harvard. He was then teaching at Berkeley, always taught at Berkeley. Uh, and uh, Stamp told me just the opposite, his Stamp and his lectures gave just the opposite viewpoint, that, uh, that there were things <coughs> seriously wrong with slavery that uh, blacks often resisted. Uh, just the absolute reverse of, of what I'd heard from Paul Buck, and it was just very, very exciting. And uh, I resolved that uh, <clears throat> that I wanted to study uh, this subject, and I wanted to study under Kenneth Stamp. So I went off to Berkeley, where I got my PhD. So,
1: so it, it's It's hard to imagine that the uh, uh, the professor Buck was teaching this sort of, of thing uh, at, at Harvard, no less.
0: Yeah, it's it's very interesting that that, that was going on. Uh, one of my friend and I'm just a marvelous historian, David Brian Davis, writes about exactly the same experience. We hadn't talked to each other uh, when we both uh, wrote about it, but he, too, Mr. Davis, who, ta- who taught at Yale, two uh, remarks on how uh, incredible it was that in the Harvard of the 1950s uh, this doctrine was still very, very strong.
1: Wow. Well, and, and it... it persists even in sort of the general culture, the, the kind of gone-with-the-wind uh, uh, image of the Old South, uh, the happy slaves, the uh, cruel Reconstruction. Well, it does knowledge. persist,
0: and you're quite right about that. And uh, what's fascinating to me is that it doesn't very much persist in the among the uh, Southern historians. The, the meeting of the Southern uh, Historical Association, the annual meeting in November, used to be dominated by old boys like Paul Buck, and when you go now, it's just an entirely different atmosphere, and uh, uh, young southern historians are just uh, couldn't be more with it with understanding all the complexities of the south. So the professional historians have changed, but the uh, culture, as you say, in some quarters lags behind. Uh,
1: it may be uh, you know, a generation before teaching and uh, uh, scholarship eventually percolates to uh, sort of general understanding.
0: That's a shrewd way to put it, and I think that often
1: happens. Now, I did glance at one uh, question that you were asked in, in this written interview, and I wanted to ask, ask you about it here. The relationship between writing and teaching as a, as a professor, as a scholar, how does that work for you?
0: Uh, well, it doesn't work the way it's supposed to work uh it's supposed to be that the teaching enormously stimulates the research and the research enormously stimulates the teaching um, but it never worked that way for me uh, I loved both these roles I, I i adored being a teacher and i and I adore writing books, but they got in their they got in each other's way for me uh, and I think it 's partly because I just never was bright enough to do both things at once well uh when I when I concentrated on teaching, i'd I'd concentrate on that and I'd lose the thread of what I was writing. And then when I was writing, I'd concentrate on that and I'd lose the thread of what I was teaching. And I think that my by far my most successful uh, years of writing have been since I retired from teaching just because I can now, in a single minded way devote myself to writing.
1: well i'm I'm thrilled to hear that because i I, I think I share that uh, the reluctance to do multitasking. Uh, i 'd rather do one thing at a time, mm-hmm. and I find it, uh, very much the same thing when when teaching a a large class load I throw myself into it if i 'm writing it 's uh, throw myself into that but it 's hard to do both uh, but you 've certainly succeeded uh, in terms of writing with this, this this current uh book and let me turn to that the the uh, road to disunion Volume two where as you say takes up the story in eighteen fifty four you start by talking about the paradigm way of teaching about the uh, the approach to secession. The, you've got the South uh, before, let's say, 1830, 1831, generally reluctant to maintain slavery. It's, it's what Jefferson called a wolf by the ears. You don't want to hold it, don't want to let it go. Uh, suddenly, Nat Turner rebels, Garrison starts publishing The Liberator, and the South as one says no this is a positive good we wish to retain slavery and now it's
0: precisely be- that notion that caused me to um, have to take the story back to 18 um, from from 1860 back to 1832 what i found the people constantly saying in 1860 jerry was we're afraid there are a whole bunch of southerners who are not in favor of keeping slavery uh, and can be worked on by Abraham Lincoln and his party if Abraham Lincoln builds a southern Republican Party. That made no sense to me in view of what I had been taught, and what we'd all been taught. That is to say that the South, in 18 say 30, by 1835, had uh, thoroughly and unanimously decided that slavery was a good. <clears throat> that was the biggest reason why I suddenly realized I couldn't start in 1860. I had to find out why people thought in 1860 that the south uh, was still a very divided culture. And the more I went back, the more I found that there were indeed uh, deep divisions in the south that were never papered over, that never could be papered over, uh, and particularly between what I call the border south and what I call the lower south. By the border south, I mean the south closest to the north, and by the lower south, I mean the south closest to the Gulf of Mexico. And those two worlds are just different worlds, and uh, they never do accept the same ideology. Uh, and there thus uh, remains uh, reason for those in the lower south to be suspicious of those in
1: the border south so so you've got two souths at least uh, the 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 lower south and the border south that don 't yeah
0: and, and there are others and and then there 's the middle south, which is right between them and um, I think of it uh, in easy terms uh, this way that after Lincoln was elected, the lower south seceded. But neither the Middle South nor the Border South did, and that those Middle South and Border South areas contained two thirds of the Southerners, which means that two thirds of the Southerners did not think Lincoln's election justified disunion. But when the war starts, the Middle South secedes, uh, but the but the uh, Border South did, never secedes uh, and throws its resources largely into the hands of the Union Army. And in, in another book that I've written. I argue that has a lot to do with the Union victory.
1: So the South is hardly this monolith of uh, uh, of pro-slavery and pro-secession sentiment.
0: Exactly, uh, and in fact, the uh, the uh, the secessionists right after Lincoln's election are, are a minority. Uh, and my greatest task is to explain how a minority could control the major- majoritarian process. Uh, and that, that
1: that that takes some doing. No, well, that's the theme that runs through through this whole book. This discussion of minorities and majorities. We we live in uh, a Republican small R society that, that where the elected representatives make the laws, uh, and that's supposed to be the case in the 1850s. But somehow uh, you argue that that's not what happens. So minorities drive the process. Uh,
0: That's right, who, who are the uh, minorities? And that, that, that is what I think, and by the way, that is what the majority North thought uh, in the 1850s, which had a lot to do with Lincoln's election. Look, when you look at the, um, the politics of the 1850s, it's amazing how much the South controls uh, the whole process of decision. Uh, the South, which is a minority section, succeeds in getting the Fugitive Slave Law. The South, which is a minority section succeeds in getting the kansas-nebraska act the south comes within a really fascinating inch of uh, forcing Kansas to be in, admitted as an enslaved state uh, the south has a mi- uh, the minority south has a majority on the Supreme Court and gets the dread and gets the Dred Scott decision through so you have a constant process of the minority section controlling the Union uh, and I think it's that process that eventually just gets on northerners' nerves and, and makes them determined to turn the majority <clears throat> rules system into a system where the majority will indeed rule. And that is, I think, Lincoln's biggest campaign theme in, in the 1860 uh, presidential campaign. Not what to abolish the... slavery, but to abolish the minority slave powers' control over the majority.
1: That, well, that does not make sense because that also accounts for the... Uh, the generally uh, racist attitudes of northern voters uh, are such that even those who are anti-slavery aren't necessarily sympathetic to the slaves.
0: Yeah, you put your finger on what I think is uh, just a major theme, not only in the history of the coming of the Civil War, but also in American history. And one one of the reasons why American history is so important to uh, study by our citizens today, Uh, it is certainly not just the South that is... is, uh, prejudice against blacks. Uh, The North also has a slavery system before the American Revolution and, indeed, uh, until the 1820s in the most enslaved states like New York and Pennsylvania. And the North has a a serious system of segregation long before the South does for free blacks. Uh, And the North is a strongly anti-black culture with, with really severe black codes and in some states uh, refusal to allow blacks to come into the state. Uh, so racism is not a southern disease. Racism is a national disease, uh, and it's one of the reasons why studying the Civil War is so fascinating. Because despite the fact that um, the northern, the average northern, doesn't like blacks and really doesn't wish to uh, have uh, uh, blacks freed if they're going to come north, still gets. Uh, uh, moved by the process of history to eventually become an emancipating society. And how you get from a racist society to an emancipating society is a fascinating process.
1: That sounds like another book uh, in that one. (laughs) Well,
0: you can write that one. (laughs) (laughs) Now,
1: you talk about the South exerting its minority control, and uh, the mind immediately leaps to the three-fifths clause that gives southerner Southern whites, uh, more voting power than... The Northern whites, but that can't be the whole answer. How, how does the minority South get all those laws passed—fugitive slave act, Kansas, Nebraska, and so on? Uh,
0: you're very shrewd to say that the three-fifths clause has a lot to do with it, but as you say, it doesn't have anything to do with it. Doesn't have everything to do with it, and I would say it doesn't have most to do with it. I think it's the two-party system that has most to do with it. Uh, the Democratic Party before the Civil War is a nation's majority party. That is to say, more congressmen. Uh, more Supreme Court uh, judges, more presidents uh, are Democrats uh, before the Civil War. Now, um, Andrew Jackson and his Democratic Party have had a mammoth influence, uh, and and <clears throat> although there's some Whig victories, they usually win. Uh, <clears throat> but inside that majority party, the South has far more power. The South uh, uh, gives far more senators and far more representatives and far more votes proportionally to that majority party than the north does. So you have the minority section in control of the majority party. uh, And that leverage uh, enables the southern-dominated Democratic Party to pass
1: all the laws that we've discussed. So without having the numbers, they... They have this extraordinary leverage.
0: They have leverage, and uh, whenever you study politics, it's not necessarily numbers; it's leverage that counts. We see this all the time in Congress now. Um, certain congressmen have much more power than they ought to have, considering what a tiny state they come from. But they're able to um, manipulate the system in a way that gives them power. The study of politics is a study of power, and it's not necessarily the same at all as the par- uh, as the study of who
1: has the most votes interesting well let's take a short break we'll come back in just a moment we're talking today with Bill Freeling author of The Road to Disunion volume 2 and many other books we'll come right back in just a moment on Civil War talk radio Some historians would say sometimes it's a matter of individuals, personalities, railroad timetables, and other details. We'll find out the view of Bill Freeling on this curious question when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
2: you got a small business, well then you know how tough it can be. You know, marketing, finding new customers, and especially just staying focused on the day-to-day details of running your business. Well, even though my business was doing okay, it wasn't where I knew it could be. I was getting a bit discouraged. Then I heard about this little book called Growing Your Business by Mark LeBlanc. Wow, I still can't figure out how such a small book could make such a big difference in my business. It only took about an hour to read, and the things I learned, well, all I can say is I'll be using Mark's ideas for a long time to come. Why? Because they work. I learned how to really focus on what I need to do to attract more customers and how to be more successful by creating a plan for generating more business. I guess that's why Mark named his website SmallBusinessSuccess.com. Clever, huh? Small Business Success. That's it. If you want to be more successful with your business, and who doesn't, you should check out Mark LeBlanc's website at SmallBusinessSuccess.com. You'll find Mark's books and lots of other resources for growing your business. SmallBusinessSuccess.com.
1: World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with William W. Freeling, author of new book, The Road to Disunion, Volume 2, Secessionists Triumphant. It's a book that takes the story of secession from uh, Dr. Freeling's first volume, which goes up to 1854, and this one takes a story from the Kansas-Nebraska Act 1854 to the firing on Fort Sumter and the secession of the Confederate states. Uh, Bill, in our first section we talked a bit about how the South was a minority section in terms of numbers before the Civil War, and yet dominated the federal government through much of the 1850s. Uh, you, you carry that theme through this book, uh, this minority control in a what seems to be a democratic republic, uh, in a number of ways. For example, within the South itself, non-slaveholders outnumber slaveholders considerably, yet the minority drives the agenda. How did that happen?
0: Oh, that's one of the great questions in southern history and uh, i would expect a, a historian is, you, is you, as good as you to answer uh, and it's not the easiest question to answer for the simple reason of sources uh... we have mammoth sources uh... from the the wealthy from the slaveholders they, they stuffed them in attics they gave them to libraries and uh, um, the problem is whether one can find the time to read everything that the slaveholders wrote on the other hand There is extremely little writing survives of non-slaveholders. There are very few letters. There are very few diaries. And to get at their viewpoint, one is often guessing more than one would like to. Uh, It's it's rather like studying the institution of slavery, where you have mammoth evidence from the slaveholders but scanty evidence from the slaves, and you have to guess often uh, about the slaves' viewpoint. But insofar as I can guess about the non-slaveholders' viewpoint, I I make a sharp distinction between non-slaveholders that live in areas with lots of slaves and lots of slaveholders and non-slaveholders who live in areas with with scarcely any uh -uh, slaveholders. In order to make that distinction clear, I, I like to divide the South between the black belt South and the white belt South. Well, everybody's heard of the Black Belt South and knows what it means. It means an area black with slaves. But the White Belt South consumes an equal amount of geographic area and has as many whites living in it, but the, the Belt of the South with very few slaves. In the Belt of the South with, with black with slaves, I think that uh, slaveholder non-slaveholders, have some real stakes in slavery, racial stakes in keeping blacks under control, uh, and even economic stakes in in making sure that blacks don't compete with them. We used to say that the non-slaveholders had a stake in buying slaves themselves someday, but I'm dubious about that because the price of slaves went so high in the 1850s, way beyond what most non-slaveholders could pay for. it. But non-slaveholders did have a racial stake in keeping blacks under control, and they hated blacks and they were delighted to serve on patrols Uh, which kept blacks under control. In a certain sense, they were slaveholders, at least psychologically, because they were responsible for patrolling the area and making sure the blacks were uh, home at night and in their plantations. So in that Black Belt South, I think there is a stake of the non-slaveholders in slavery. I can't prove that because there isn't the, the evidence. I just strongly suspect it from all kinds of hints. On the other hand, in the White Belt South, where there aren't very many blacks, the possibilities of turning against slavery seem to me to be much greater and that is exactly what the slaveholders were worried about
1: so places like Missouri Kentucky Maryland uh, that are slave states but not but with, with much smaller percentages of slaves
0: yeah a very different
1: uh, much, attitude there
0: exactly much smaller percentage of slaves and this is I think the crucial thing Jerry most smaller percentages of black belt neighborhoods it wasn't just that you have fewer slaves it was also that many many uh, neighborhoods many many areas didn't even see a slave uh, and there you have an entirely different psychology and I think a psychology much closer to the racist Norse psychology that is to say uh, we're glad we don't have blacks here uh, and uh, we don't really care very much about slavery as long as the slaves don't come here
1: Well, there's a a marvelous map on page 66 of the book, your map of of the state of Missouri, and it shows that there's literally a black belt running along the Missouri River where slavery is concentrated in that state. And the suggestion is the rest of the state is largely uh, a a very big white majority.
0: Which indeed it is, and that white majority is getting larger. Uh, Blacks are being sold down south from Missouri. Whites are pouring in to take their place, and the percentage of of blacks is dropping, and here again what I think is really important is that the percentage of neighborhoods that have blacks is uh, dropping, uh, and, and that map I think shows beautifully, and you could do the same map of any border south state, how uh, how a small percentage of the geographic area has very many slaves in it, and by the way, since you mentioned the maps, I think the maps in this book are marvelous, they were drawn for me by a California cartologist named uh, I can't think of his name at the moment, but anyway, he did a did a beautiful job. Uh, David Fuller is his name. I uh, did a beautiful job on my maps, and uh, one of the things I came away thinking is that if authors uh, had more to do with having the maps drawn for their books, the the, the, uh, the maps would be better for the readers.
1: Well, I think that that's absolutely true, and this, these maps really are good. There are a series of them, and each one is specific to the point you're trying to make in the text. They're not just space fillers or maps of things we already have in our collections. They're and if
0: you'll very... let me talk for just a second, Jerry, yeah. about another thing that I think is very important in the book is the photographs. Um, I feel that photographs are just absolutely crucial for helping readers understand the text. Uh, and some of the photographs in this book are just incredible photographs, some of them never published before, and they illustrate abstract points so that you read about a certain person and then you see that person. Uh, and when you see it uh, visually in a really sharp picture, it makes all the difference in understanding how a man operates.
1: It, it does, and, and if uh, it certainly maybe the best example in the book on page 392 I'm looking at is the photograph of John Townsend whom I had never really heard of, I don't even think, Uh, a member of the uh, Secession Association uh, Mm -hmm. in 1860. And this photograph, it's too bad we're on uh, an audio medium here, but uh, listeners, you've got to buy the book just for the photograph. Uh, This this South Carolinian is posed in a way that... uh, The picture is incredibly sharp, incredibly detailed. Even after being reproduced in the book, you can see so much more than in many modern photographs. Uh, The pose uses props, uh, classical Greek column books, to tell something about the person. But the personality, it just exudes from his posture, from his face. Uh, I, I, I cannot endorse the photographs highly enough. You're absolutely right about that.
0: I'm so glad that you like the picture of John uh, Townsend. It, it, to me, tells almost the whole story of how extremely conservative reactionaries in Charleston led this revolution uh, and why only such people could ever get such a reactionary state uh, out of the Union. And the picture has never been published before. I was just absolutely ecstatic when I found it.
1: It Uh, it is a a great picture, and there are pictures like that throughout that, Really tell us something, and the captions help bring that alive too. It's always. uh...
0: Oh, I love you for saying that, Jerry. Another picture that I think is just sensational is a picture of Alexander Stevens. One of my my points uh, is that uh, the Unionists had real trouble being uh, active uh, and and, uh, hard driving as active and as hard driving as the secessionists. And you see that when you see this picture of of Alexander Stevens, who's literally lying down on his hand in the picture and is so passive and he's so tormented and you can see that this is not a man that's going to be uh, actively in, in fighting for a cause and that lack of active fighting has a lot to do with the union's losing, I think. When that, you see that, that, it all in a picture, it's so wonderful.
1: It is. The, these pictures are worth the proverbial thousand words and then some. They're a, a strong, strong part of the book. Um, we were talking about the the white belt, and you said you pointed out that people in these states in the, the upper South, in Missouri and in, in Maryland and Kentucky, uh, you said slaves are leaving; they're being sent down the river, uh, sold mm-hmm. at a profit. Their labor is being replaced by immigrant laborers moving in, and I believe your book says that in the state of Maryland, uh, by the time of the Civil War, the free black population outnumbers the enslaved population
0: yeah it is not a fascinating process. Uh, we think of the South as being different from the Caribbean because the South had an entirely black uh, and an entirely entirely black slave, and entirely white population, two two races, two classes, et cetera. then uh, we, we think of the Caribbean as having three classes, free blacks, slaves, and whites. And thus we think of Caribbean slavery as being very different. But in fact, in in two of the thirteen slave states, Half the blacks or more were freed. Half of them in Maryland. Eighty percent of them in Delaware. And uh, when you look at that kind of statistic, you can see why people in the deep south, where none of that, where very little of that manumission has taken place, are uh, trembling about what's going on up in the border south.
1: So, so slavery is really eroding in Missouri and Maryland.
0: Yeah, you have to be world. careful when you say that because it's eroding only very slowly. Uh, And in my own judgment, I don't know how you feel about it. It would it would have taken another 50 years for it to erode entirely. I I liken I liken the situation to the situation in the border north, uh, where it takes 50 years for New York to abolish slavery, and it takes 50 years for Pennsylvania to abolish slavery. We don't think about it that way. We think the North abolished slavery right after the American Revolution, but it didn't. It was a very slow uh, process, and I feel that. Uh, it would have taken that same kind of slow process
1: for slavery to evolve out of these uh, white belts. And yet, the even though it's taking place so slowly, it is very upsetting to the the Deep South, to the the Lower South, that Ex- this, this erosion of the periphery seems to to spark a lot of the the political agitation that they
0: exactly. And, and the the big fear is that. Uh, it can be accelerated, that if you just let it alone and, and let, let it evolve slowly, it will evolve slowly, but uh, that slow process can be sped up uh, under the right circumstances. And the right circumstances include, as, as the Lower South sees it, uh, successful politicians being able to agitate in the White Belt areas for uh, for office uh, and thereby arousing the, uh, the non-slaveholders. Everything is... Going to go slowly as long as there isn't agitation. But the minute there's agitation, this is the way the lower South secessionists see it. The minute there's agitation, that process may speed up.
1: And that, and it's that attempt to suppress the agitation that, in turn, angers the North. That,
0: that's exactly that's exactly the point. And if you look at it a little bit more at large, the the, the ultimate attempt to stop the agitation is secession itself which breaks up the white democracy, which I think has a lot to do with why the North wants to fight a civil war, in order to keep white democracy together. So this this process throughout the 1850s of, of, of saving majority rule from the South becomes a, 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 a climactic process of saving majority
1: rule from the Southern secessionists. Now, I, I mentioned in the break, that uh, some people argue big impersonal forces control history. Uh, you make a point that sometimes it comes down to the individual or even the the odd coincidence. And you tell a very interesting story about the the actual moment of secession in South Carolina, and what ha- that has to do with railroad timetables. Uh, yeah.
0: Before I tell that story, let me let me preface it by saying that this is a very difficult uh, problem for an historian because. I do think that coincidences have a very important short-term effect on a process, but the long-term uh, trends that have been part of the American Republic from the beginning are going to continue. So it's not that I think that if uh, there only hadn't been a railroad that we never would have had a civil war. It's that I think that if we hadn't had this incredible railroad coincidence, everything would have worked out differently and just might, ha- and, and civil war just might have been delayed. This isn't. These coincidences are not the only thing involved, and there's all kinds of more fundamental and basic forces. But I'm just fascinated by the way uh, coincidences, quirks, personalities can at least temporarily deflect an historical process. In, in the case of,
1: of South Carolina, after the election of Lincoln, uh, you explained very clearly in a way that I had never really grasped before uh, why so many South Carolinians were willing to, to to take the leap into uh, secession before lincoln's even taken office, uh, the, the common question I get from students: Well, you mean he hadn't done anything yet? Uh, no, he's not even in office. Well, that shows
0: uh, how smart your students are. They're, they're uh, He they're hasn't they're... done anything, and 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 that is what that is the cardinal argument of most southerners. He's constitutionally elected. He hasn't done anything. He doesn't have a majority in Congress. He doesn't have a majority in the Supreme Court and he's willing to offer this constitutional amendment, which I think is just fascinating, in his inaugural address, which forever keeps federal hands off slavery and is considered an unamendable constitutional amendment. So why is this man dangerous, and why should we risk slavery in a civil war before we find out whether he's going to be dangerous? It's a very powerful argument that the unionists have, and I think that's why they're in a majority in the South. And, and
1: But you address that in one word, which is patronage. Uh, that, that That's what seems to most threaten, the, the, the right. thought of Lincoln appointing Republican postmasters.
0: Right. Well, that's what comes through most strongly in the sources, and I repeat that that was a very surprising thing to me way back uh, when I first got tenure. The, 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 the people would worry that Lincoln would use a political party in the process of giving tenure to build a Southern Republican Party in the South, and that Southern Republican Party, not a Northern Republican Party, but a Southern Republican Party, would eventually agitate against uh, slavery, uh, and that is the that is the major argument for for those against those who say Lincoln can't do anything. Yes, he can do something. He can he can build a political party in the south with his patronage position, and that political party can agitate against slavery, where slavery is uh, in a weaker state. Uh, and that's what the South Carolinians are afraid of. Their problem, as you pointed out before, and I want to get back to your excellent point, uh, is that they're in a minority, uh, and uh, the secessionists uh are are in a position of feeling very strongly that slavery is in danger, but they don't have a majority with them. So the problem is to find out some kind of way that a minority can control the process. And their, their, uh, their nightmare is the calling of a Southern convention, because if a Southern convention is called after Lincoln is elected to decide what the South will do, the majority of the Southerners can control that convention. Uh, and can, can uh, essentially vote not to uh, secede, to recommend back to their states not to secede, and put a real wet blanket on secession. So what the, what the uh, South Carolinians are determined to do is to abort any chance that there will be a Southern Convention. Uh, and so much of what they do is an attempt at that abortion, an attempt at that uh, precluding the majority from getting an institution, the Southern Convention, that they can uh, control. And the best way to stop uh, that uh, majority process in a Southern Convention is for one state to secede. And that one state is going to be South Carolina. And the problem is that the South Carolinians are scared to death to try it, partly because, as I said before when we talked about John Townsend, they're such reactionaries, such cautious revolutionaries, that they're afraid that they're going to be stuck out on a limb all by themselves. So the beginning of secession is very much a process of these South Carolinians trying to get up the nerve to do what they think they must do, which is secede by themselves first and alone before any of the other states can get together and call a Southern Convention.
1: Well, Bill, we're going to take a break right here on the very precipice of secession (laughs) and take a, a short break. We'll come back in just a moment and find out what gives the South Carolinians the nerve to go over the edge and push their state uh, into secession and precipitate a civil war. We'll find that out when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. World
2: Talk Radio.
1: Than South Carolina, and no part of South Carolina more conservative or reactionary than the Low Country planters. And yet they are the ones who precipitate the Revolution of '61. How did that happen? We'll find out when we come back on Civil War Talk Radio. It's the one-level playing field in business, the Internet. It's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than a multinational corporation. But to achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs a developer who knows the net and
2: how to make it work. Your company needs Appseo. Appseo's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective organizations. Make a great
1: first impression on the web. Choose Appseo, A-P-S-Y-O. For more info, visit
2: www.appseo.com.
1: You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Our guest today is Bill Freeling, author of The Road to Disunion, Volume 2, Secessionist's Triumphant, 1854-1861, to 1861. Don't Let the Long and Maybe a little academic sounding name of the book throw you. It is a fascinating read that will give you a new perspective on the coming of the Civil War. In our last segment, we brought ourselves to a cliffhanger ending with South Carolina considering secession after the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860, but hesitating. This is the state that almost seceded in the nullification crisis and thought about it in 1850, and each time they stepped back, they're poised on the brink again in 1860. What's going to happen this time? Why is it different?
0: You you, you set up the question so, so beautifully. Let me say that on November 9th, which is three days after Lincoln is elected, the South Carolina Senate votes 44 to 1 to delay a secession convention uh, and thus possibly allow a Southern convention to be held. And on November 10th, the uh, same body, 24 hours later, votes unanimously to to speed up secession and to go ahead with uh, instant disunion. Uh, and that 24-hour period is, is absolutely fascinating. Uh, and all the all the history that I've written from the, the South, from, from the American Revolution to uh, Lincoln's election, cannot get me from November 9th, when South Carolina stopped, to November 10th, when they go ahead. And a great problem for me was to try to figure out what happened in that 24 hours that gave these uh, aristocrats the nerve to try what they would not try a day earlier uh, and the answer turned out to be a railroad uh, the coincidence of when a railroad was completed uh, there, there, there was the erection of the uh, Charleston to Savannah Railroad in the 1850s it happened to be finished on October 26, 1860 could have been completed In September, it could have been completed. In December, it just happened to be finished on October 26th. And on November 3rd, there happened to be a celebration of that railroad in Savannah. Uh, And the uh, people there arranged for another celebration on November 9th, precisely the the evening after South Carolina had voted to the light. That meeting could have been scheduled any old time. But it happened to be scheduled when nobody knew secession was going to be in trouble on November 9th. And lo and behold, in Charleston to celebrate were some Georgians who were very, very persuasive to South Carolinians. Uh, one of them is a man named Francis Bartow, who is one of the incredible figures in this book. Bartow is an American nationalist. He's married to John Berrien's uh, daughter. John Berrien had been the most important. American nationalist in, in Whig politics in the 1850s uh, in the South. Uh, Francis Bartell was an equally committed nationalist. He hated the idea of uh, disunion, but he gets up uh, at this meeting in Charleston and says that if you secede, uh, we don't. We're not. we're not going to have any choice but to go along with you, because we cannot have a nation of South Carolina on one side of the Savannah River and a nation of... Uh, on America on the other side of the Savannah River with Georgia a uh, part of it, we've, but we've got to be part of the same nation. So he says, in effect, to these Charlestonians, please don't secede, but if you do, we're going to have to go along with you. Uh, and several other Georgians say the same thing, and there's an immense uh, cheer that goes up because it is seems to the Charlestonians that Georgia has pledged that they will go along, and if Georgia will go along, many other lower south states will. And a telegram is sent to uh, Charleston, just to Columbia, excuse me. Uh, and a train is uh, sent to Columbia the next day. And the next day, with this news in their pocket, the secessionists win in South Carolina, and the whole final process of secession gets underway. If that railroad had been started, uh, completed on another day, and if that railroad celebration had been scheduled for another day, none of this uh, could have happened. So, in the very short term a coincidence like this can make a huge difference.
1: And something that struck me as I was reading that was the analogy you drew between South Carolina's act of secession going from uh, not wanting to do it or not sure about doing it, ready to put it off, maybe yes, maybe no, but when it happens it's with this rush of enthusiasm. And you draw an analogy to the uh, actions of Preston Brooks and Charles Sumner uh,
0: oh, I'm so glad you noticed that, Jerry, because that's a very important point to me. Uh, Preston uh, Brooks, in a very famous assault on Charles Sumner in 1856 in the United States Senate, uh, had been uh, outraged by what Sumner said in his, his speech, Charles Sumner of Massachusetts. Uh, with Sumner of Massachusetts it's said in his speech about the South and about a relative of Preston Brooks, uh, and he was determined to avenge that, uh, that uh, insult, uh, <clears throat> but he, he, he has a lot of trouble getting up the nerve to avenge the insult, and we, we watch him staggering around for days trying to figure out how he's going to get at um, the, the stronger Sumner, uh, how he's ever going to assault him, uh, and finally he rushes up to Sumner and starts beating him, and when he starts beating him, he just can't stop. He's so exhilarated by overcoming his own uncertainty that he uh, just keeps whipping and whipping and whipping Sumner and makes Sumner a much greater martyr than he need uh, have been. And exactly the same thing happens uh, in the secession crisis. The South Carolinians stagger and stagger and stagger about whether they dare do it. And once they do it, there is no stopping them.
1: And 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 there's this passion that overtakes them. Uh... Uh, as you say, there's there's no stopping. There were there, there's there are so many interesting things in this book. I, I liked very much the way you summed up the, uh, the the situation in the West when both sides are arguing whether slavery should be allowed into the territories, whether popular sovereignty should determine the fate of slavery. And uh, as you paraphrase it, the North uh, is saying to the South in so many words, "Your institution of slavery is foul, and we will not." Uh, allow it to come into the Western territories, and the South, especially through the Dred Scott deci- decision, is saying your behavior, the language that Charles Sumner uses, your instigation of our slaves is is dangerous and vile and ungentlemanly, and therefore you shall have nothing more to say about our institution in the West or anywhere. And the two sides just cannot compromise at that point. They, they have such negative views of one another, neither of which is about the benefit of the slaves.
0: Exactly, uh, and neither of it necessarily has to do with whether slavery is actually going to go into any territories, uh, and neither of it has necessarily has anything practical to do. It has to do with whether you're a scumball and whether
1: I'm a scumball. There are only 200 slaves in Kansas. Well, that's uh, right. Uh, th- th- that fascinated me. Only two hundred slaves in Bleeding Kansas. It's that's all right. fought on principle.
0: There are only two hundred slaves there, but uh, but uh, the, the, the whole principle is: Does the South have as, as as morally legitimate a right to be in there as Northerners do? Are Southerners as good as Northerners? Uh, and the, the whole argument easily dissolves into a question of uh, who is who is who is a filthier
1: person, you or me? Yes, and and, and there's no. No easy way to resolve that. No graceful way to compromise that kind of argument.
0: Once you get to that point, you're pretty close to a civil war.
1: Now, one question I absolutely have to ask about is your consumption of the the role of the slave in all this. You point out the role of the slaves is is enormous but largely undocumented.
0: Yeah, Uh, thank you for asking about that. Uh, The most important mode of slave resistance, in my judgment, is not revolting. You have almost no serious slave revolt in North America after Nat Turner's revolt in 1832. We think of when slaves revolt, when slaves resist, they should revolt. But actually the successful form of resistance is running away. Uh, And that there's quite a bit of, especially in that border south, especially in that white belt area. Uh, And any time a slave runs away, he raises moral questions about the master. He's saying to the master, in effect, you're scum. Uh, and I will not be part of uh, your uh, regime. And and when a northerner helps a slave escape, he is saying, uh, in effect, to the uh, southerner, you're scum, and I will help your slave escape. And also the the slave owner is losing an expensive slave. Uh, And so the fugitive slave issue becomes a very important issue, especially in that uh, precarious border area. Uh, and, And who is it who creates that fugitive slave issue? It's these fugitive slaves. Without the fugitive slaves, you wouldn't have a fugitive slave law and a fugitive slave controversy. And without the fugitive slaves, you wouldn't have a Kansas-Nebraska controversy. And as far as I'm concerned, Jerry, I don't know if you agree with this, without the fugitive slaves, the whole Civil War could have gone a a different way because so many blacks ran the Union Army Army ranks and entered the Union Army uh, and became a mighty force, what Lincoln called his sable arm, so Southerners have their excuse me, blacks have this enormous effect on Southern politics and on the military outcome of the war.
1: They also have have a, a subtle effect that you talk about. You use the term cuffy as a, which was a, a derogatory sort of generalized term for uh, for a black person, and you you use it to point out uh, the caricature of, of the African in the, southern, the white southern mind, uh, as someone who cannot be trusted because sub- they, the, the slaves are supposed to love you, the master, uh, you've told them to, you've ordered them to, you've whipped them into it, and they say they do, but mm-hmm. you know they can't really mean it because you're forcing it out of them. And so there's a sense that you can't, since you can't really trust your own slaves, maybe you really can't trust anybody.
0: That, that, that that's part, that's very. That's a very discerning reading of what I'm trying to do. You can't trust the slaves, you can't trust the non-slaveholders, you can't trust the Yankees, you can't trust anybody who's who's playing a role, who's acting. And it's a very, very suspicious culture uh, that the South uh, has. And, and that suspicion, that, that, that uh, tendency to fly off into thinking that, that there's going to be trouble from all these people who are pretending, Uh, It's a very important uh, psychological dimension of this this
1: whole affair, I think. Well, well, Bill, the music playing tells us we're at the end of our hour. I wish we had another one, because this book is is really a fascinating one, uh, and I would love to hear more about it from you. But, listeners, you do not want to miss uh, The Road to Disunion, Volume 2, by William W. Freeling. It will uh, entertain you, if if that's the right word, uh, through its pictures of these, these fascinating characters, It will challenge you to rethink a lot you think you know about the coming of the Civil War. Uh, Everyone in the field will be talking about this book for a while, I think. Uh, Bill, I'm glad we got the chance to talk today.
0: It's been a great pleasure talking to you and a great pleasure being on your show. And Your listeners are lucky they get to hear you every week.
1: Well, well, it's uh, lucky for me that I get to read these books and, and talk to interesting people myself. And listeners, uh, it's lucky that you're here uh, from my point of view. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.